I feel kind of the same way. Like her, I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in theaters, but I liked it. Right. You know, I liked it. I, I felt like it was a good movie, but I was never necessarily as personally connected to it. So that's fine. I haven't seen her, I think, since I saw it in the theater. Um, but I, but yeah, I, I do think that's that. Uh, what I just said. Yeah. You said the same thing I said, but you said it in a different way. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster from San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. You're so mysterious. Yes, very mysterious. And today we are going to be reviewing Shang-Chi, the new Marvel film, Reminiscence, which uh, premiered on HBO Max. And for the streaming homework, we're going to be talking about the documentary Andre the Giant. Um, but the world wants to know, where are you? What side are you on in the trenches? That is the album battle between Donda and Certified Loverboy. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I barely know what you're talking about. Um, I barely know what I'm talking about, too. Yeah, because... Kanye and Drake, they're like feuding, right? Yeah, they're they're oasis blurring right now. I mean, I'm on Drake's side just because it's not Kanye's. So I, you I, used to be you used to be a uh I used I to be know. a Yeezus believer, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um I here's the thing, I think it, those earlier albums still hold the fuck up. Uh mm-hmm. it's just he is the type of personality that is like, how do you separate for him from, how do you separate the art from the artist when so much of it is based off of like who he is? You know, it's kind of the Louis C.K. Right. problem. It's like, it's so personal that you're like, everything you do now is kind of fucked, is kind of tainted. Um, right. By and- your, I mean, he's not as far as I know, a uh, sex offender <laughs> um, or, uh, you know, but that doesn't mean he's not a crazy asshole. Well, that yeah, that, uh, that is true. I believe he has been pretty much the whole time. I think it's just the level of crazy and the, the direction in which he is steering his asshole behavior is uh, more um, problematic now than when he was just like, Yelling at Taylor Swift or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, before it was kind of like a sideshow attraction. Like, you know, what's he going to say this time? Um, right. And now it's just like, ooh, what's he going to say this time? <laughs> I I don't think I could tell you one Drake song other than Hotline Bling. Or was that what it was even called? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Meaning I heard that I, song a decent amount. Um, I mean, I've probably heard Drake songs like in the grocery store and just didn't know or care, but, uh, I have heard a couple tracks off of Donda Uh and I'm not even like a Kanye guy. Like I basically have never really cared, but I mean, I will say that they were, they were okay. I will say like 
if you've never listened to my dark twisted fantasy, I think that is like an all time, like greatest album ever made kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, th- that's the one that people usually talk about. Jesus um, is really fucking good too. And he hasn't really made a good album since. Yeah. I've just seen this stuff online. I will say, have you seen the cover to the new Drake album? No, I actually know nothing about the new Drake album. Just Google that really fast and give me a fast reaction. Okay. Certified lover boy, Drake. Your immediate reaction will be like, that's probably not it. I need to keep looking. It is it. I, I'm seeing a bunch of things. Is it the weird pregnant emojis? <laughs> that's it. That's actually kind of clever. I actually don't hate <laughs> that as much as the last thing that I that like popped up. <laughs> I have been enjoying the new Turnstile album. That came out um, a couple weeks ago. There was a long lead up to it. They kept releasing tracks like one a day until the full album was out on okay. Spotify. And then uh, my pre-order came in the mail. And I, I, I waited till it was all the way in to listen to it as a whole. And I've been a big fan of theirs since like 2016 or whatever when they released their first full length. But uh, I think check out the new Turnstile album. Check out all their stuff, but I think the new one is a good jumping on point. They're getting, you know, they started out as sort of a hardcore punk band out of Baltimore, um, but they were always a little bit catchier, a little bit bouncier, um, more mid-tempo, and they they always kind of made allusions to, like, early 90s, like, funk rock stuff, like stuff like Faith No More and the Chili Peppers, and that kind of stuff is always sort of weaved into their music. And now they're, like, integrating that more in with, like, modern production. There's a song on the record that almost sounds like The Weeknd. So, I mean, they're really, they've really, like, uh, expanded, you know, their musical palette. There's a couple, like, straight punk songs on there, but a lot of it is kind of more alt-rock with punk influence okay cool um but if you like like mother's milk era chili peppers or like early faith no more or like living color and that kind of stuff that's sort of their bread and butter um let's go ahead and get into the first segment that i had planned we are reviewing a science fiction film. I guess yes. do we consider Shang Chi a science fiction film? Uh, I guess broadly, well, you're, you're specifically referring to um, reminiscence. reminiscence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, superhero um, sci-fi fantasy stuff is all sort of you know its own kind of genre. So, but reminiscence did get me thinking a lot about modern sci-fi or the sci-fi we've seen since the year two thousand. And I, I, I made the cutoff date 2000 because I think The Matrix, which came yeah. out in 1999, kind of demarks. It's the definitely big, a watershed a shift. moment. Yeah. Yeah. A major shift in not I, only science fiction, but action films in general. I think there's pre-Matrix, post-Matrix. Absolutely. Um, I, I agree. I was... Um I would... I, I almost said we should make it 2001 just to be cute. I mean, there are the Matrix sequels in there. I don't know if that'll come up, but um, we're each going to name three. I didn't want this to be a super long segment, so uh, we'll each name three. This is going to kind of be a draft, so if we name one, we have to scratch it off our list and pick something else. Okay. Um, and we can, of course, talk about what didn't make it on there, but uh, I'll let you start. What is one of the three best 
science fiction films since the year 2000. And I am making the distinction best over favorite because, you know, there might be some like a lot of people love like Equilibrium. Is it a great movie? I don't think so necessarily, but it's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, So I will say right out of the gate, uh, the one I'm going to give you the most shit about because it came up recently in our review of Jungle Cruise, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Absolutely one of the best sci-fi movies of the last 20 years, the last 10 years. Like, it is just such a fucking good movie. And And for people who didn't listen to that review, I like Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. I just didn't didn't think that it was the praise it deserves. I just didn't think it was the Christ savior of all film at the time. Although I probably appreciate it more now than I did at the time. I So the reason I'm putting this on my list is it takes... Everything the previous Mad Maxes did, the mm-hmm. post-apocalypse stuff, amps that up to 11 and has some really fucking cool social commentary and just badass action in mixed in with it. I, I like mm. the Mad Max series because it's like some science fiction tries to make logical leaps and the Mad Max franchise as a whole tries to go beyond that. They try to make the next logical leap and then make a cartoon, like, grotesque version of that. Like, you know, one of the generals is literally a bullet farmer from, like, Bulletville or whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just think it is incredibly, uh, incredibly well done satire as well as social commentary. Um, And... I know that the apocalypse from Mad Max is caused by like a nuclear holocaust or whatever. Um, but uh, do they even really say? Like, I, I mean, I've seen the, I've seen all of them, but yeah. Um, I have always thought it's kind of been sort of vague. You just see, you just notice movie per movie, yeah, and, it gets and you, worse and worse. And I think, um, I think in the first couple they mentioned that like it was caused by man. Um, yeah. but in Mad Max Fury Road specifically, I'm like, Ooh, this is probably the closest to what, like the climate change apocalypse that is, is going to happen is what we're going to see, you know, like right. one fucking warlord hoarding water and, and his fucking pregnant birthing concubines. Um, well, that's, what's interesting. Uh, if you look at the series as a whole, like it starts out with them fighting over oil mm-hmm. and and gas for their vehicles. And then by the time you get to Fury Road, they're fighting over water. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I again, I think it takes everything the previous movies established, cranks that up, and it does it in a way that, like, you know you don't need to see any Mad Max movie before this to appreciate it. Um, and... If you have seen all the Mad Max movies, you can still appreciate it. I think in that sense, it's also kind of like a perfect sequel. Um, I really like the way the Mad Max franchise is built because it's like each one is sort of this independent adventure. um, But they do tell a longer narrative. It's just right. And each one is aesthetically different. Yeah. And this one is so different. It is very Mm -hmm. colorful. It's funny to me that they made a uh, the... Was it the Chrome edition where it's black and white? Yeah. Um, because the movie to me is so colorful, uh, especially where it's like mostly in desert. Uh, mm-hmm. But George Miller does a lot of fucking 
work within that, which could be a very limited palette. You know, it could just be sort of your right. uh, earth tones and, and you know, sepias, yeah. but it's like, it's not. It's like reds yeah. and yellows and, and incredible blues. Like, it's, it's a very colorful movie. I just... I love that movie so yeah, much. They cr- crank up the saturation. Yeah. Um, another uh, post-apocalyptic film I'm going to mention is Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. Yeah, that one's, I think, obligatory on any mm. uh, greatest sci-fi movie list because, shit, I think that's probably one of the closest ones to like accurately predicting what the world is like right now. I mean... It's definitely a film that's informed by sort of the paranoia of terrorism and the paranoia of, you know, especially in Europe um, at the time. And and I think that it, unlike the Mad Max movies, I mean, Mad Max is a big circus show, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's, Whereas it's social commentary... But like a comic book version of it. It's yeah, it's like, very theatrical yeah. and there's a lot of costumes and that kind of stuff. It's and, like Cirque du Soleil almost, yeah. Right, and that's what we love about it. But, you know, Children to Men is taking a much more sober and verite approach to to it. I, I believe Alfonso Cuaron noted um, his, the biggest in, stylistic influence on the movie was the, the Battle of Algiers, um, to give you some context. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it takes, you know, takes place in a kind of near future where, for whatever reason, women become infertile and we quit reproducing after a certain point. And, and, uh, well, it, you know, it, it feels close enough to, um, current times that it's not, there's not flying cars and stuff like that. But, you know, it definitely, like, everything's kind of war torn and, um, you know, social unrest is around every corner, and Curran brings his his directorial prowess in the way that he shoots some of these action scenes, you know, a lot of single takes, long shots um, that, like, crank up the stakes and the violence, and it just feels very real and very almost scary. It's, it's kind of a terrifying film, mm-hmm. but it's also really, really well made. And, yeah. um, and yeah, there's a lot of like really cool performances in it. And, you know, Michael Caine is in there as well. And there's some sequences in there that are just like some of the best ever shot. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why this is typically, you know, when you ask the question, greatest sci-fi movies, of the last 20 years, this is almost always number one because, because it's so, I think, connected to to the time. Like, it feels real, you know. it, it mm-hmm. It's technically sci-fi, but it almost doesn't even feel like it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, social fiction. What, uh, what do you have next? Ooh, okay, this is where I have to narrow things down a little bit. Um, all right, I'll talk about a movie that I have talked about pretty much since we've watched it uh annihilation i think is one of the best sci-fi movies i think it captures weird cosmic horror in a way that no other movie i think i've ever seen has just like pure existential dread um but it is also like a very colorful movie um mm-hmm. uh and the the sci-fi elements come 
for those of you who have not seen it, there's like an extraterrestrial area that has uh, generated on Earth. Um, they don't exactly know the origin. Uh, they don't know what's causing it. Um, so a group of scientists go to explore it um, after another group of scientists has gone missing. This time it's an all-female crew. Uh, and they go in to find out what happened to the previous crew. Uh, and it just, the way it approaches, I just think this movie has gotten closer to capturing, uh, quote, alien better than anything else I've ever seen. Like it is, it, to me, the, the movie is almost incomprehensible, uh, as, as far as like how they came up with this stuff. Um, but it also feels very believable. It's it's mm-hmm. not it's not like a Lynchian dream logic going on here. Like we can tangibly see what's happening, uh, but the cause of it is so sort of beyond our understanding um, that it, it truly feels like to me an encounter with something that is not of this earth. I I love that movie, and I just think it 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 approaches science fiction from a different angle than most sci-fi um right yeah there's something there's something really scary about there's you know sort of this fear of infection that runs through the film and it's this body horror element to it as well because people who are in this zone Mm -hmm. start to be affected by the radiation in in weird ways and mutations that occur like people turn to flowers there's bears right. that scream like humans uh, yeah I mean, alligators I mean, with shark teeth like yeah it truly becomes kind of otherworldly and hellish um while at the same time like structurally the movie has kind of like a heart of darkness mm-hmm. um apocalypse now feel to it where you're on this you know this weird journey where yeah. this weird mission where it just everything becomes more like more morally muddled and messy as you go down. Well, and this. just and just more detached from everything you knew of the world before, right? Uh, like you cannot go into Area X and come out the same. Um, yeah, yeah. I just think it is kind of a mind blowing movie and will leave you kind of fucked up for a while, which right. I, I think yeah. some of the best sci fi does. <laughs> One of the best, like, scores in a movie in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting as far as that goes. I believe this is Alex Garland, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. this was his... Was this his directorial debut? Um, uh, he's no, I believe he did, he did Ex Machina before that. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he had written some films for that uh, Danny Boyle directed. Which, uh, um, Ex Machina, I, I also think could be on my list. But I think... certainly. This one edges it out a little bit for me between the two because I think it's dealing with bigger concepts. Yeah, I think it's, it just kind of takes it to another level. That's that's actually why yeah. I picked this over Ex Machina. Although I think I think uh, Alex Garland, as far as like original science fiction work, I think he's one of the best screenplay writers right now. Right. Which did uh, you see that uh, Annihilation was based on a book, but. Uh, a series of books, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's um, pretty different. Yes, this actually makes it a little harder because I was going to pick that. Ooh boy, I'm going to go with Snowpiercer. Okay, all right. That's on my, um, the, my uh, that one's on my like reserve list. 
your short list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this was a uh, Bong Joon Ho's first English speaking film. Um, it's I th- believe it was like a multinational production. Um, there's like you know more than one country put in to, to have it made, and it uh, it also deals with kind of post apocalyptic themes, post um, uh, global warming, and then you know there's mm-hmm. sort of an overcorrection that causes the planet to freeze over and. All life as we know it fits on this multi-stranded uh, train, mm-hmm. and he deals very bluntly with. I mean, it's based on a comic book, I think, but mm-hmm. he deals uh, very bluntly with uh, with satire and with social commentary, specifically well, de- dealing with class. Yeah, specifically class warfare. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Right, the back of the train, the further back you go into the the carts on the train, the poorer the community is where they're eating, you know, gelatin squares made of bugs and at the front of the the you know, front of the train they're in hot tubs eating sushi and, and whatever. Yeah, and, um, and like their their lives literally have no value at the back of the train. Um, right, yeah. Yeah. And children are kidnapped um, mysteriously for some unknown reason, and you know we learn more about that. And and there's some sequences. Each each cart is kind of treated like a separate set piece. Um, and there's some that are more comedic and the colorful. Um, and then there's some that are like graphically violent. Um, and it, you know, I think it plays around with this idea of the owner class and how it's it's a satire that's meant more to me the longer i've been away from it like it it's it, it the satire rings truer and truer like yeah. each and every year i actually uh i re- i rewatched it recently um fairly recently and was like oh fuck like Right, damn! Like <laughs> there's, there's, there's kind of a, like a political nihilism um, that that sort of uh, undercurrent in it, and 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 this idea of that, you know, that this setup of the working class versus the owner class is perpetuating itself. That it, it it's um you know the warfare itself is you know is led by the the powers that be. To create division on purpose, essentially. Yeah, um, I mean, this this movie <clears throat> portrays it. I mean, almost, almost from like a, a, a like it is just an inherent trait of humanity that this right. kind of class structure just will happen, like kind of no matter what. Right. Well, it, it, I mean, I would I would say it's a very kind of a Marxian commentary um, going on throughout it, but it. It done in a very, very smart way. And I mm-hmm. think that um, a lot of people weren't, like, as crazy about this movie when it came out because, you know, Chris Evans wasn't the star that he is today. And well, he, 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 he one could argue Captain he may America, or may not. But, but I, think, right. I think people were so used to seeing him, like, as Captain America. And this is a much darker role. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's still an action sci-fi movie, but... Uh, I just don't know if that's what audiences wanted from Chris Evans at this time. Right. And I think, I think that, uh, the movie was just a little too 
idiosyncratic for the world at that time. I actually think if the movie came out now, it would probably um, I, I actually think, have a different effect. I actually think maybe not idiosyncratic. I think maybe a little too pointed. Um, and yeah. I don't know if it would have a different effect. Uh, I, I feel because this isn't like huge budget movie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, especially when we're talking about sci-fi, like, that's one of the things I like about sci-fi as a genre is it can be tra- portrayed in anywhere, f- you know, from as minuscule as like household technology, um, to as grand scale as something like Star Wars. Um, it, you know, anything and everything in between can be sci-fi. And this, I think they accomplish a lot with some small sets. Uh, you know, there's like some CGI yeah. snow apocalypse stuff, but for the most part, we're in these pretty small confines. Um, yeah, and I just think you know nowadays people want something a little grander scale from sci-fi. I think they maybe I I, I don't I don't know if that's necessarily it, but. I, I mean, I like the movie a lot, and I, I've seen it a few times since seeing it in theaters, and it, it always just kind of hits a little harder every time I see <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, for sure, as we get a little bit closer to that being real. <laughs> That's the theme of this podcast, I think. Uh, what is uh, – is this your third one? Yes. Oh, fuck. Okay, I'm kind of torn between three here. So I'm going to go a little bit different of a route than sort of the stuff we've been talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, uh, sci-fi as a genre tends to get pretty dark and nihilistic. And um, it's usually used for satire and social commentary. Um, And this movie also does that, but it does it on a bit more of an intimate level. Um, I think Her by Spike Jones is one of the smartest sci-fi movies that I've ever seen. Uh, so Her stars Joaquin Phoenix and he falls in love with his AI phone, basically, um, played by the voice, uh, played by Scarlett Johansson. And the reason I'm choosing this one is because I just think as social commentary goes, kind of like um, uh, Children of Men, I think this is just one of the ones that's a l- like just so got its finger right on the pulse of what, uh, you know, privileged society is going on right now. Like, uh, just our relationships with our devices, with our phones specifically, um, like we're basically there. I feel like you know. I how often do you look at your phone during the day? Uh, right. And and this movie came out how many years ago? It's twenty fourteen, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So we're a little ways removed from it, and phones are not that far away from the technology they mm-hmm. have in that movie. So I just think it's really uh, smart and really captures the isolation and the kind of the loneliness that this generation uh, has and uh, specifically our kind of unhealthy relationship with technology, even though, you know, it's great. It's a blessing, but it's also kind of this weird 
curse and and uh as connected as we are it also isolates us way more than you know people probably have been in the past i just think it's a really smart movie yeah this was on my list and i this is one of my favorite visions of the future on a production design level Mm -hmm. uh, because it takes place you know presumably 20 something 30 years into the future something like that los angeles um and you know the 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 way it's shot is very naturalistic and very earthy, and obviously he's using you know sets set design and some maybe some like CGI backdrop stuff or whatever to kind of change the facades on downtown LA buildings yeah. and things like that so that they look futuristic. But there's it feels real, even like the the fashion choices that yeah, the characters exactly. have. Like, they're all kind of dressing more like, uh, you know, certain little things, like, that came from the 40s, like mm-hmm. taller, longer pants and things like that. Yeah, kind of like a, a neo-retro style that they've got yeah. going on. And the kind of, yeah, neo, almost kind of uh, Art Deco uh, meets futurism kind of thing. So, I, I love that aspect of it. And even, like, the depiction of video games and how that connects to your iOS and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff is feels very real and very, I, I very well think, thought out. I also picked this one specifically because it's it's not an action movie or, or a horror movie. Right. It's, it's I mean, not, technically, it's a love story. Yeah. Um, but it's I not have a this question. Like, overblown production thing with set pieces and violence. Right. It's, it's a, a smaller, more intimate, I think realistic kind of portrayal of of the future like it it feels more like the struggles our generation is dealing with Mm. um versus something like mad max fury road which is this uh you know again sort of grotesque version of what the future could be this is like this is kind of what we're already living in well kind of i i do think that they um they overestimated um (laughs) Human decency. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a there's an element of utopianism in the movie that I don't think is necessarily possible, at least right now. But um, I have a question. Mm-hmm. When this movie came out, I was in film school and we had all seen it, and there was some amount of argumentation between us over whether or not Spike Jones genuinely believes in this relationship between. Joaquin Phoenix and his phone, mm-hmm. um, or if it's all tongue-in-cheek satire and you're supposed to think it's funny and pathetic. I don't think it's entirely like – I don't think you're supposed to think it's funny and pathetic, but I do think it's sad. Um, I do think it is mostly satire. I I don't think that he is portraying this technology in a positive light. Um, I think it – because the way he that he sh- the way that it's written and the way that the performances are uh, come across yeah. is it feels very sincere it feels very you know uh grounded like i it, it never feels like it's passing judgment on the characters even the other characters who know cuz when he decides to start you know a relationship with this iOS mm-hmm. he just says it very naturally to his friends like oh i you know i'm seeing somebody now it's it's her it's this person this ios you know it's siri basically Mm -hmm. um and everyone's like everyone's like oh okay that's a thing 
like, I still got the sense that this. But is character- that all? Like, is yeah. there a level of irony there that is like next I, I brain think level? So. I think. I think at the heart of this movie is an inherent loneliness. This inherent yes, uh, inability yeah. to connect with other people. I think that is the <clears throat> core of this movie. And so if you strip it down to its simplest idea, I think everything else is kind of satire. Now, I don't think it's necessarily passing judgment at the character, but I do think I do think it is a very I do think it's a very sad, lonely portrayal of the future. So I don't think it's meant in a mocking tone necessarily. So maybe satire is not the best word. Um, but I don't think it is. I don't think it's as utopic as you said. I think it is kind of dystopic in a different way. Okay. Um, let's see. What do I want to end on here? There's some big ones. I know. When you told me three, I was like, that's not enough. I know. I was doing it just to save time, which obviously didn't matter, but... Just say it. Three, two, one, go. Inception. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to be too big of a bitch for that. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say it. I so... I almost did. Uh, I mean, how do you talk about sci-fi without mentioning it? I mean, it's obviously... I think since The Matrix, probably the most influential of kind Certainly. of any of these that we've talked about. And one of the most successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, kind of generation defining in a lot of ways. It's, you know, I feel like I always have to caveat this whenever I talk about this film. It was never a film that, like, I personally connected to that much. You don't, I you always, don't need to, you don't need to disclaimer it. It's fine. I always admired the filmmaking a lot and still do. And I can enjoy watching it on that level. But I, like, there are movies that I didn't pick that I connect to a whole lot more. Sure. That are maybe technically not as good of films. Well, um, I mean, I feel kind of the same way. Like, her, I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in theaters. But I liked it. Right. You know, I liked it. I, I felt like it was a good movie. But I was never necessarily as personally connected to it. So that's fine. But with Inception, I, I the reason why I picked it is I think that it it's undeniable that, you know, Christopher Nolan as a as a creative person as a director, as a filmmaker, and this movie in particular pushed the medium of cinema mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, other, in a way similar to The Matrix. Like, The Matrix not only introduced this whole idea of, like, you know, cyberpunk, um, you know, simulation world theory and, you know, Philip K. Dick on acid kind of stuff, but it and, and you know uh, a lot of stuff they 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 were pulling from anime and mm. all sorts of things, um, but I think that uh, uh, the the Wachowskis also like changed cinema. Yeah. They changed the way that that action was directed. They changed the, the scope and the size of a set piece, and and you know I would argue that even like the the superhero film was deeply influenced by The Matrix, and in the same way. I think that uh, that's what Christopher Nolan did with with Inception. Um, you know, he uses dream logic and these different things of the the setup. Uh, you know, this conceit of of dream. Yeah, to it's, be able it's like to an art house concept, but right. with big budget sci fi intentions. 
Right. Right. Which was what was his thing, you know, yeah. at least up to a point. Um, I would still say that's kind of his thing. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of good performances in it and there's a lot of great, a lot of great action set pieces. I'm, uh, I'm probably more than anything impressed by the editing of the film because the editing plays in on a story level that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is, uh, yeah, very complicated between like the different levels of the dreaming, different temp- temporal, um, rules per level. I mean, Did all I- that's extremely complicated. So quickly, what did not make it onto your list? Um, I was the the big ones. I mean, there's a few I uh, think are worth mentioning. Um, uh, Donna, Planet of the Apes, um, or just in general those uh, the the new the Ape new Ape trilogy. Apes trilogy. Yeah, very um, good stuff. Uh, I think Wally's worth mentioning. Oh yeah, um, Cloverfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but the Big one that I was going to list if I had like one more choice would have been District Nine. Yeah, that's that's up there, and the only reason why I didn't pick it is because it's very good, but I I feel like the movie lifts a lot from other movies. I mean, an old sci-fi genre stuff sure, is yeah. going I mean, to any, do that anyways. Any kind of genre like this, everything is built on the back of something else. Um, Specifically, I think this movie takes a different approach by it grounded documentary film style. I think they can kind of sneak sci-fi in in a way that most other sci-fis never really attempted at this time. Um, And I think arguably it's for a while, was just as influential as some of these movies we're talking about. It just, I think, has kind of been forgotten by time a little bit. A um, little bit, yeah. But I do think Nominated it, for Best Picture. I do think it changed the way we kind of approached sci-fi, uh, or, or approach sci-fi now. So, um, yeah, I think it's still definitely worth an honorable mention and, and worth some conversation. For sure. Um, I'll start at the bottom and work my way up here. Uh, I also have Tenet. I think, again, like Inception, it's it's very well made. Alita, not a great movie, but kind of interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it also, I think, yeah, I think there's, there's some. I'd say if there. you're a fan of sci-fi, you should see it. Mm-hmm. Um, Minority Report is very, very good. Uh, yeah. Moon. That one, oh fucking moon! I forgot yeah. about moon. Shit, that that one. Duncan Jones is kind of like Neil Blomkamp, and in, in like, ooh, yeah, they only have this like one amazing movie in them. I also um, really like Source Code, his follow up to Moon. I thought that was like a good sophomore effort. Cloud Atlas again, very interesting. Oh, okay. uh, kind of messy, but interesting. Edge of Tomorrow is a whole lot of fun. Yeah, also, I think that's one of the first ones to kind of take the um, Groundhog Day concept outside of Groundhog Day, which is kind of a genre in and of itself at this point. True, true. Uh, the Martian, I didn't like as much as other people, but it's good. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's good late period uh, Ridley, uh, Scott. Ridley Scott. Yeah, it's not embarrassing like some of his movies. It's yeah. not Exodus. It's um, not the any of the other Alien movies. Right. Looper, 
Um, very, Looper's very good. good. I I felt like that one was just a little too niche. It's a little boilerplate. Yeah, but um, it's a solid. It's a solid yeah. sci-fi noir. I just, I don't think that one sort of changes the mold the way like Inception or... Uh, or even District Nine kind of did. I, I don't. Right. I don't think it had the same kind of impact. But it's a cool fucking movie. Yeah, for sure. I do have Prometheus on here, not because I think it's a oh, great film. Fuck you. Fuck you. But I, at the time, there was a scope and a scale to it, and an austerity to it that I could respect. He was. Um, I mean, I will give Ridley Scott credit. He was. He was. He was he, batting for the fences. Right. Um, I think it was a foul ball, but he he still hit it. He yeah. Uh, uh, similarly, Interstellar, Donnie Darko, which is an early two thousands affair. Okay, um, I wasn't sure when that one came out. Um, uh, two thousand two thousand or two thousand one. It's like right there. Yeah, that one is interesting because it's it's almost science fantasy. Right. It's almost more of a like psychological thriller at times like yeah. it's it it i mean it's very lynchian in a lot it of has ways sci-fi but elements but they're they're kind of buried under other concepts i think but it's right yeah i yeah. think it's worth mentioning yeah uh the road uh oh, which is which is yeah. one of the darker post-apocalyptic films you'll ever see yeah that one will put you in a mood i also had a cloverfield um I like Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. You yeah, know, the, other than the last the third insane, is kind of dumb, honestly, but, I don't even think it's the last third. I think it's the last shot. The insane, like <laughs> somehow the grandparents are still fucking alive uh, in the same house we left him in is batshit. But uh, the there's movie some really itself, cool stuff in it. Yeah, I think I think the movie as a whole, aside from a schmaltzy ending. Holds up. I think it's a, a pretty solid sci-fi action thriller. Yeah, there's a, there's some sequences in there that are like the the stuff with uh, with uh, Tim Robbins. Yeah, and well, yeah. and also like some of the stuff with like the the crowd sequences are yeah pretty haunting for sure. Um, Sunshine, which is written by Alex Garland, directed by Danny Boyle. We talked about how they work together. Mm. Um, that one is also has a, a has a very large vision behind it. Yeah, Doesn't, and like, that totally... one also has kind of a problematic third act, but other than right, that, yeah. is, uh, is a pretty solid movie. Under the Skin, it, I almost picked. I haven't uh, seen that one yet. By so. Jonathan Glazer. It's um very icy, post-Kubrick, creepy, creepy, weird movie. Um, uh, Ex Machina. And this would have been on the list, the the one that I'm about to say, would have been on my list, no question asked, had the director not completely fucked his reputation by being a psychopath. Oh, um, okay. And that's uh, Upstream Color by Shane Ruth. Oh, I don't... I don't know. Uh, well, um, Shane Ruth was the same guy who did... Primer, which is also a, a fun, mm-hmm. low-budget yeah, sci-fi film. Yeah, decent, uh, like, time travel. Time travel thing. Upstream Color was his follow-up to that. It starred him and Amy Simons, who were dating at the time. And, um, I mean, it's a gorgeous movie. And it's it's haunting, and it's 
heartbreaking and it's one of them again with the the way that the editing and sound design work into the story elements of the film you almost have to watch it like two or three times to like fully understand what's going on mm-hmm. but it is um an achievement of cinema for sure and okay. he's incredibly talented but um he also is a psychopath and and Amy Simons was in like a 10 year long abusive relationship with him where he wasn't letting her see people or letting her out of the house oh. and and uh she had to put a restraining order on him so I don't really feel comfortable like endorsing the movie yeah, anymore. Hashtag #canceled. Sorry. Super canceled, but I mean God, oh, that's a good movie. Um yeah, but we got to yeah. stop we got to stop giving psychopaths passes a pass just yeah. because they're incredible artists doesn't mean that they're good humans and yeah. i think you know we should set the standard to at least be decent human and a good artist uh yeah. oh i also um i almost forgot um i think arrival uh and kind of anything by denis villeneuve um, yeah we'll is be seeing worth about mentioning but his uh dune that's coming up here. Yeah, soon. I'm sure that will probably be on most people's short lists yeah. soon. So let's talk about uh, really quickly. Let's get through um, Reminiscence. I'll let you set that up. What's going yeah. on in that movie? Speaking of sci-fi movies. Um, so this is about uh, Hugh Jackman plays this sort of he's his character is able to like create tangible livable memories um Mm -hmm. he has this machine called reminiscence where he can take you back through and you can sort of relive these memories as though you're experiencing them for the first time yeah um and some uh, people use it as like to re to relive the best moments of their life some people just need to remember where they left their wallet yeah yeah it can be Um, anything in, in that spectrum so, uh, this movie takes place in, like, I, I don't want to say post-apocalyptic version of Florida, but it is definitely undergone some climate crisis. They mention this, uh, like, border war a few times without, like, a lot of specific detail about it. Um, yeah. The world has changed. The, the world has shifted. People um, are riverboating everywhere they go now. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a Venice, um... <laughs> Uh, so he's working, Hugh Jackman plays Nick Bannister, and he's working with um, Thandie Newton, who plays uh, Emily Watts-Sanders. Um, she's sort of his sidekick uh, at this reminiscence job they do. Um, it's basically like private eye, but specifically like through like a matrix virtual reality of your own memories. Yeah. Um, until one day, Rebecca Ferguson comes in. Uh, she plays a character named May. Um, and she uh, lost her keys. And she comes in at closing time. And so she needs their help to like find her keys so she can get home. During this whole exchange, uh, Hugh Jackman's character becomes, you know, kind of a love at first sight with her. And, like, needs to go and find find her. Um, he's going through her memories, looking through her keys, and she's, like, a lounge singer. And the more he learns about the, her, the more she he's kind of enticed by her. Um, until one day she goes missing out of nowhere. And he's obsessed. He has to find out why. 
what happened to her. So that's kind of the the story. And then, you know, there's twists and turns. and um, There's some, like, political intrigue that's going on, like, in the background of all of this. And yeah. Some corruption and, and things that they're all tied into. I mean, earlier you used the term boilerplate. And yeah. this is about as boilerplate as it gets. This is... This is kind of like any noir film distilled down and then yeah. with sort of a sci-fi computer skin put over it. Um, I mean, this is basically every Philip K. Dick story. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a little bit of but uh, Minority Report. This, this is a is... little bit of uh, Total Recall. Sure. You know. The difference is this is, you know, 40 years after Philip K. Dick. So, right. Uh, yeah, it's fine. Um, I don't know. It's, I thought it was kind of boring. Um, and maybe that's because I am so familiar with all the genre trappings. To me, it kind of felt like an improvised noir story. <laughs> um, uh, it just was so like color by numbers to me um, that I just had a hard time getting kind of excited by everything. I, I, I thought the setting was all right. I thought, you know, like the sci-fi concepts were interesting. I thought the dream machine was kind of cool. I thought most of the characters were pretty two dimensional. And I think this movie does a lot of tell and not a lot of show. Uh, yeah, the, the characters exclusively talk in plot points. Yeah. Um, they they don't, I think they're, I think I might've recalled one scene where they're not literally trying to explain something to the audience and I forgot what it is already. Yeah. Like, there's and it, one, I mean, like, it doesn't, oh, help. it's the scene, it's the scene with Dandy Newton where he's talking about her her daughter like she abandoned her daughter to and she's an alcoholic everyone's an alcoholic yeah, but even in the future. that kind of has a plot important right but, but with this is something we already knew about the character so at this point there's at least a little bit of like delving into character because he's like saying like you know get away from me you're addicted to me i'm holding you back like blah 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 it's, i'm not saying this is groundbreaking stuff i'm just saying this is the one time it's not pushing plot forward but but even in doing that even when it comes to character work, it's all tell. Like instead of right, yeah. instead of seeing the character be an alcoholic, it's literally like, oh, you're drinking again. You know, like they have to like literally put dialogue in it, and that never affects her actions. You know, she's never right. She never fucks up the machine because she's so drunk. She never. It never has any ramifications. It's literally just, oh, you're an alcoholic. Oh, you're. Uh, addicted to the past like it's literally just like we're going to tell you what this character's deal is right yeah no i see what you're saying yeah and i mean i i guess i was speaking more directly about uh about exposition but yeah which yeah there is a fuck ton of that in this and you expect that a little bit in one of these kind of like detective-y things you know there's a lot of voiceover that kind of stuff and, and there's a little bit I, of stylistic leeway in I letting you give do that but the movie a little bit of uh, uh, a leeway specifically because like the voiceover narration does kind of have a little bit of a payoff at the end like right there is a reason we're hearing this narration 
Um, whereas, you know, typically in a noir, it's, it's just narration. So I, I'll give it a little bit of cr- slack for that, but overall, I, yeah, this was pretty whatever to me. It's very middle of the road. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, the characters only speak in plot points and the, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of flat. The movie doesn't look great. It's all kind of shot in mid shots, everything. Is mid Yeah, the, the like um, when we see like the Venice city or when we see the flooded Miami, like that looks cool. Yeah, um, there's a couple establishing shots for that type of stuff, but for the most part, like all the coverage is very television. Like the whole movie just is shot like television. Yeah, and I should say that the director came from the writer director came from Westworld. That's what she's well, mainly known for. You would know because like half the cast of Westworld is in this. Right. And, uh, and it, HBO produced it. It, it feels kind of like a made-for-TV movie, honestly. Right, but not in a great way. And I think even at this point, we've seen movies um, yeah. pull this off better. Just everything about it feels kind of slight and wrote and done before. Yeah. And um, even, uh, like, uh, what's his name? Nicole, something Nicole. The guy who did Gattaca. And in time, and he did a bunch of these type of Philip K. Dickey things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even like his like lesser material is kind of like already at this level on a theatrical level. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just nothing about this like really stood out. There, there is one um, action sequence near the end that I think is pretty well choreographed. Yeah, um, but at that point, it's kind of too little, too late for me. It's. This movie's fine. It's whatever. I don't know. I was kind of bored by it. Yeah, it 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 just, it doesn't have enough dramatic traction. And I think the big problem is, you know, there's the there's the story elements, like the per- interpersonal story elements of him trying to find this girl that he's obsessed with, and you know, him trying to like reconnect to this moment or blah blah blah, and being. And being, uh, you know, uh, internally torn apart by it from his work and his responsibilities. That's supposed to be, like, the story elements. And then the plot elements of this, like, corruption thing that kind of just comes out of nowhere towards the middle of the movie. And the movie never does a good enough job of connecting those two things yeah. to get you to, to the point to where when reveals start to reveal themselves, they don't hit with any impact. Yeah, because it always feels like two different tracks. Yeah, it's sort of everything in this movie is just like, oh, okay, Uh, (laughs) all right, sure, whatever. Like, yeah, nothing really feels like it has any weight. It's just, I don't know, it's kind of, and everyone kind of feels like they're going through the motions. This is nobody's best performance. Yeah, um, and you know, Rebecca Ferguson, we we've seen her do much better recently. Yeah, and I um, mean, Thandie Newton. Thandie Newton is, is great. Better Hugh Jackman. You know, he's he's doing what I he mean, does. Okay, I will say, I will say, uh, Hugh Jackman. I'll give him credit because I feel like Hugh Jackman kind of approaches everything at like like this is his last movie kind of thing. Um like I feel like he really gives a shit. I feel like he's really yeah. uh he really buys into this. He's really like emoting, he's really pushing it. So I'll give Hugh Jackman credit for that. And that's I mean that's what you get Hugh Jackman for. He's never going to phone it in. Um there was one moment 
in the movie where I was like expecting him to pop his claws though, and I was like, <laughs> why isn't he just fucking? Oh, he's not Wolverine. He's, he's not Wolverine here. No. Um, I mean, especially when he's like in the isolation tank with the thing on his head and shirtless and all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I know. I know what you're saying. It's. It yeah, it's fine, but it, I mean, I'm this isn't a good movie. I I can't really recommend it. It's like a C minus. Yeah, I that's exactly what I would give it. C minus. It's just whatever. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and get into Shang Chi: The Legend of the Ten Rings. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure I have the the number of rings correct. It is. Um, yes. Ten this rings. is directed by uh, Destin Daniel. Cretan or Creton. And this is the new Marvel event, um, one of three that comes out this year. And it stars uh, Simu Lau as uh, Sean or Shang-Chi, the, the uh, titular character. Aquafina plays his best friend, Katie. Um, and he kind of comes from this mysterious past where his father and his mother are. Um, you know, in this sort of fantasy, Asian fantasy realm, um, where, uh, you know, they're trying to hold back this, this deep evil, uh, the mother ends up, uh, dying in, you know, in, in some sort of battle. Um, he is then raised by his father to be an assassin, uh, and he doesn't want to live that life, so eventually, he runs away to uh, San Francisco to be a parking ballet guy <laughs> um, mm. with movie star good looks uh, with yeah. Aquafina, and they're just chilling in San Francisco when all of a sudden um, his father finds him and uh, sends assassins out for him, and you know tries to pull him back in to uh, to go back to this this realm that they come from to uh, find his mother that he believes uh, is still alive uh, behind this uh, dark fortress that this um, society that's kind of self-sustaining is uh, been protecting for some amount of years. Yeah. And did you mention um, the, the dad is played by Tony? Uh, I'm probably going to fuck up his name. But I'm going to try Tony Chu, Tony Chu Wei Long. No, I did not. And wow. he is a, a major action star, especially in Asian cinema. He was in Infernal Affairs. Um, mm-hmm. He did a lot of a lot of films for Wong Kar Wai. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, he's a, he's a big deal. Unlike the main character, actually, uh, who plays uh, Sean or Sean Chi, who has not been in much before this. And I was kind of surprised. I, you know, I took, took a look at his filmography has done a lot of television episodic television mm-hmm. he was in a taken film no he was in the taken tv series um orphan black you know a few little things here or there i didn't know but, he was orphan black. but this is the uh this is you know quite the level up for his yeah. career well did you see the thing recently where like uh it, a bunch of he did like a bunch of stock photos for like um I, I can't think of it, but yeah, like stock photos that you can purchase. Like on um, Getty I, or I, whatever? Yeah, apparently he was in, he was a model for a bunch of them, and a bunch of them, like, came out online, so that's That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. He probably didn't do it very long ago, either. No, probably, uh, he didn't, he looked the same. Yeah, the, the, the guy who plays his father is a massive star in China. Well, yeah. And a pretty I mean, big star here. 
Um, but well, he is definitely a star. Um, internationally, a very big star. And Aquafina has been growing her profile steadily since she was in um, Crazy Rich Asians. And, you know, she had a rap career before that. And she's been doing voice acting and stuff. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, we get a, a really cool, diverse cast here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen Marvel kind of trying different things. Funnily enough, this reminded me a lot of Black Widow um, because it kind of deals with a similar structure where you have this person who's like, you know, reintroduced to this like uh, family structure that they no longer are a part of. And, you mm-hmm. know, and mysteries kind of become unraveled at that point. There's crossing, double crossing, things like that. Um, of course, that the it, settings are very different. And it's funny that it reminded you of Black Widow because to me, this reminded me a lot of Black Panther. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. You know, sort of like this hero from this other world um, uh, thrown into kind of like a modern context. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, but he doesn't have to reckon with like in Black Panther. Yes, he was yeah, the prince of it, Rok- he was the king of Wakanda, mm-hmm. whereas in this movie he's parking cars in in San Francisco and then well, is thrown back into the world. Yes, he's parking cars in San Francisco, but he, you know, like. A big part of the dramatic tension is his father wants him to kind of inherit this Ten Rings army. Uh, which Yeah, this Assassin's Guild. Yeah, which the yeah. Ten Rings, like, they've been talking about since Iron Man. Um, uh, right, and they, there's some connections know. back to that. Um, I don't want to give stuff away, but there's some some fun reveals as, as far as that goes. What I liked about this movie, and I did like it, and I think I liked it more than I liked Black Widow. Uh, both movies are fine, but I, I, th- I think this movie is, uh, stylistically more interesting to me. One, because there's a lot of color in this movie mm-hmm. and, um, there's a, you know, a certain kind of like pep and vibrance to, to the way it's shot and the way, you know, there, it, this is more fun than we've seen from the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a while. And I think that, um, I, well, I, I like uh, uh, the, I, I want to, yeah, let can we pause to talk about the fun for a second? Because I yes. I think that is a big part of why I liked this movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not this big universe ending. I mean, there's some of that, but um, you know, it's not to the stakes of Avengers Endgame or anything like that. Right. Uh, we've we've kind of pulled back on the scale a little bit, but it also doesn't try to be. I mean, it's fun and funny. But it doesn't feel like it's trying as hard to be funny as something like Ant-Man, which has right. very intentional bits, has very uh, intentional setups. And this, the humor feels a lot more natural. It feels kind of like, kind of like the character. It feels a little more laid back. Uh, yeah, so I think this movie is a lot of fun because of that. Like... We still get those world-ending stakes. Like, all of that feels very seriously. Um, But it feels just a little breezier than some of the Marvel movies we've seen in the past. It feels a little less driven. um, And I like that aspect of the movie. I like that it feels like this movie has a little bit of room to breathe. Especially in the front end. Um, uh, Yeah. When we see Sean in in the real world. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this I, is one of those movies where 
you know, it's him and Aquafina. They're parking the cars. They're going to karaoke. Mm-hmm. They're hanging out with their friends who look down on them. And I'm like, I know at some point, like, assassins are going to come and there's going to be, like, magic and rings and all this stuff. I'm kind of cool here. Can we just do this movie? I kind <laughs> like, of agree. Like, it, wait, maybe I should watch that Nora from the from the Nora Bronx from or whatever. Nora from Queens. Maybe I would be really into that show. Um, but but yeah, I was really enjoying kind of the setup. Uh, yeah, just kind of the element. vibe of it. Yeah, let, let's get real. And Marvel used to be really really good at this. Like, if you think of like the first Iron Man or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, even some of the Spider-Man movies or whatever, they're really good at establishing the characters and their their uh, their outlook on the world and kind of like how they're going to respond to all the crazy stuff once crazy stuff starts happening. Um, but the other thing I really liked about this movie is stylistically, they pull in some kind of Asian cinema stuff. Not a ton, but there is a little bit of like a crouching tiger hero or House of Flying Daggers kind of wire foo element to certain sequences. Well, There's a little spe- bit of like Hong Kong action films like Infernal Affairs. Specifically, um, I, I mean, the fight choreography is at a different level than we yeah. have seen the Marvel movies in, in That the sequence past. on the bus is one of the best set it pieces. It is insanely good. And this is before he's like full superhero this is before right. like the stake of the the you know this is like the first real action sequence of the movie and it is like fucking cool it yeah. fucking rips it is like uh just the way it is shot it feels so much more impactful than anything in like captain marvel or you know what i mean like it just it is it, it feels a little more down to earth it feels a little more, uh, you know, it has martial ar- these martial arts elements to it, and mm-hmm. it is shot in a way that we can see these martial arts elements. Right, and there's a lot going on because we're talking about a moving vehicle, lots of people on the bus, um, but it's the, it's very well shot in the sense that they know when to hold the camera still and let and let a full, you know, f- fight movement. Yeah occur without making a cut every five seconds exactly every, every it, it two relies seconds. very heavily on choreography versus uh right. we're gonna make this action sequence work in the editing room right um, and i'm sure there's a lot of like green screen involved in that kind of stuff they're obviously they weren't like barreling down the streets of san francisco like sure. it depicts but, but it, it feels there, there's a momentum to this to the set piece that you know, it action movies kind of don't do anymore because yeah. uh, nowadays you can CG everything or you can whatever. And, you know, if I'm to compare this to this sequence to some of the stuff towards the end of the movie when it is a lot more reliant on the fantasy elements and the, the CGI, to me that felt like a lot of ones and zeros floating around and I'm just kind of waiting for the movie to end. Whereas That's- this – this sequence, I'm. I was actually like, you know, like kind of gripping my seat and getting into so it. So that's my. That's where we come into my real gripes with this movie. Uh, I liked all the stuff that happens in the real world a hundred percent more than the stuff that happens in the fantasy world. Not that the stuff that in the fantasy world is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, yeah, it feels a little less tactile. It feels a little less. It's just less gripping. It's like, okay, I get it. Now they're the fate of the world. Gotcha. 
Um, right. But all of the stuff sort of preceding that was like, you know, like a fucking Jackie Chan movie. Like it is. Right. It, it, the scene on the bus, there's this scene on the side of the this building that is fucking really cool. Right. It's just, That's the stuff that remind me a lot of like Hong Kong action movies. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think to me, that is where this movie succeeds. It is all kind of sort of the front end does all of the work so that the back end can kind of just be a Marvel movie. Right. Uh, which, you know, is fine, you know, but those formulas are showing. Those seams are a little more visible than they used to be for me. Right. Um, so for me, I was like, can we just keep all of that sort of grit that we had at the beginning? Can't we, what happened to that? You know, as well, soon as we get to this fantasy world, it's all sort of fantasy action. And right. I, I just liked all the stuff in the real world so much more. Specifically, they're kind of building up towards this one-on-one battle between him and his father. Yeah. And that's the emotional arc of the movie. And I feel like that that gets undercut by the introduction of like giant dragon squids and the, yeah, you know, and all it, of this stuff that we, it's like, I, w- I want to see that battle. Like, let's just pull it all back. I know yeah. Kevin Feige has his, like, you know, we got to have the descri- destruction quota, and that's what the big CGI event is for. But I wa- I don't want that. I want to see him and his dad, mano a mano, just going at it for 20 minutes. Totally. I 100 And it can be in the sa- fantasy world because it'll involve the rings and all of that. But I want to see the cor- well, yeah, choreography. Because, because at the beginning of the movie, there's this incredibly uh, choreographed fantasy action sequence with Mm -hmm. uh, the father and the mother. And it's like you said, it has these sort of like crouching tiger elements to it Mm. that it's so that part was so well done. And well, again, uh, there's sort of this emotional uh, choreography going on um, that like you sort of see these characters fall in love over this fight scene. And I wanted the opposite of that with uh, Shang and his father at the end. I wanted right. this incredibly choreographed scene where we're we're seeing all of this dramatic turmoil through this fight choreography. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think you know the dragons and stuff are cool. It's what you know. It's fine. It's cool. But I I I agree. I feel like the emotional. Uh, core of this movie kind of gets sold out a little bit for a big CGI action set piece. Uh, yeah, that's that's my biggest complaint with the movie. And I don't even mind them going to that realm and seeing like the weird animals and stuff like that. I mean, no, did- I, I also <sighs> thought like as far as that goes, I thought the creature design was really cool and very different. It has right. this like Asian influence, like there's these like giant dragon cat things. Uh, right. Or, I mean, know. it looks it looks cool, and I think they actually could have even they could have even leaned in harder on those influence, like those wire fluid, uh, yeah, uh, influences of like Hero and and House of Flying Daggers and and that kind of stuff, and like you know, play really like loudly with the colors, like in those movies and that kind of stuff. I would like to see them do that even a little bit more, but. And I like the ant character, you know, that he meets there. Not like yeah, an played by insect, um, but aunt. Rather, uh, Michelle Yeoh, who yeah, who's great in the movie, been around forever, and um, yeah, very influential actor. 
But that last third of the movie does feel rushed. Yeah, um, it just feels a little like... It feels like, okay, here's the action scene you're here for. And I'm like, I'm actually not. I was sort of into everything else right. going on. Can't we go back to that a little bit? Uh, and again, it's not that any of that stuff is bad. It's It's just those formulas are a little, well, you know, like if we look at the Marvel formulas, like how many secret societies can exist in this world? Apparently how many, a lot. <laughs> you know, like, sure, we're going to get a whole movie of that with the Eternals. Like, right. I, and it's not that, that that's necessarily bad because, again, it has its own uh, influence. It, it has its own vibe. It's that it kind of gets sold out. For these big, you know, monsters and battles, which is, mm. which is just like, okay, I, I didn't need that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much where I am with it. I have seen some people online complain that Aquafina is too big of a part of the movie. I disagree. I loved I'm her. I'm team Aquafina. She's the audience in the movie. Um, I also thought she was, um, I, I really liked her relationship with Sean. They right. never explicitly say if they're like romantic or if they're just They explicitly friends. say they're not. Do they? I mean, yeah, at one point her, the, her grandma's like, oh, blah, 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 when are you going to get married to him? And she's like, we're friends or I something don't know. like I, that. I didn't, my point is I didn't need them to spell it out. Right. Uh, one way or the other. I, I just liked their relationship. They have good chemistry. They have a good, the actor's have a really good uh, chemistry. They play off of each other really well. And I thought the characters uh, had a really natural chemistry. Yeah, yeah. no, I thought she was great. Uh, my my one thing with her, my one complaint that I will say is there's this sequence where she like learns how to do a bow and arrow. And that's like, she learns really well. She's And there's this moment where that comes into play. And I actually think that moment would have been way more impactful if she had really sucked. At the bow and arrow up to that point. Oh, okay. Um, so subvert that expectation. Yeah, because like her character's yeah. whole thing was she couldn't find a thing she was good at, and then like, yeah. oh, I'm magically like really good at bow and arrow right away. Like, because th there's even a part where like like the sort of general of this land is like, no, you need to stay back and be safe, and it's like, okay, we've already established that this society the women are warriors; they don't have to stay back. And we've established that she's a fucking amazing shot after one day. Like, right. So I, I felt like that sequence was naturally building and would just would have played way better if she had always kind of been not good at bow and arrow. Yeah, and I, I, I can see that. I mean, there's a lot of like do sex machinas towards the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, uh, you know, the 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 major set piece at the end that we're, we're both kind of not crazy about. I liked the movie quite a bit and had a lot of fun with it. I'm going to give it a B plus. I think uh, for my money, this is, I think one of the best introductions to a character that Marvel has done in a long time. Um, you, you know, like there's kind of the thing where, the first movies with the character are never like the best, except for maybe the first phase. Right. Um, and then like the sequels kind of build upon that. I, I feel like this is to me like a top tier first Marvel movie. Like this is top tier introduction to a character. 
probably since like Black Panther. Um, I yeah, I really like this movie. I think I'd also give it a B plus. Like I I agree with you. I think it just the Marvelness kind of takes over at a point, and I think this movie would have been a little bit better if they had sort of loosened the reins a little bit mm-hmm. um, and let it be its own thing because it is its own thing. Um, Up yeah. to a point, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that is uh, Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings, and I'm excited to see the character interact you know, with other Marvel characters in the future, um, as well as other adventures starring the character. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this... This is the first, like, sort of new phase Marvel movie that's gotten me excited in a while. Agreed. Uh, Why don't you talk about Andre the Giant? Yeah, so Andre the Giant um, is sort of a sports documentary movie produced by HBO um, that, you know, just takes a, a close look at the life and career of... Um, the professional wrestler uh, f- whose full name was Andre Rusimov. And, you know, uh, as he sort of goes into this world of professional wrestling um, and as the the professional wrestling genre, I guess, uh, as we know it, sort of builds up around him and, and uh, those sports figures in the 80s. And it's about, you know, how he came from France, um, sort of his humble origins and how because of his size, he became such a selling point for people to to come uh, see these like local wrestling shows um, back when it was sort of known for these like districts um, or regional. Uh, yeah, yeah, regional wrestling ver- before it became, uh, you know, this nationally syndicated like television production um yeah it's kind of two stories in one because you get the story of andre the giant and his you know rise to pop to fame uh through the yeah yeah international fame through these different wrestling circuits and but it's also sort of uh interweaved in there's the the story of uh professional wrestling from the humble beginnings of these local circuits into becoming this major television brand yeah, this that major we know media today. conglomeration, and in fact, they kind they kind of you know tell the story um, very explicitly about him. You know, when he was on his way out, kind of passing the baton to Hulk Hogan, who would become the face of the WWF mm-hmm. and the face of you know uh, pop culture wrestling at that time. And and I think that the, that's probably the movie's cleverest narrative trick mm-hmm. is kind of telling both those stories simultaneously and doing it in a way that still feels like it's about him, like you're not selling him out to well, I I mean to tell this other thing because they are very they 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 do mirror each other in an yeah, interesting and, and way. I mean, I think you can attribute some of the rise of the popularity of wrestling to him as a figure because he was so physically big, but also like as a cultural influence big, like, you know, he, and they kind of talk about how he has 
had sort of this sideshow attraction appeal because uh, right. uh, Andre uh, suffered from gigantism, mm-hmm. um, which led him to be over seven foot tall. Uh, over you know, 500 just, pounds. Yeah, just a massive, yeah. massive man. Um and people wanted to see that they, they you know, they, he had this sort of. Uh, well, they called him the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, so they're they're yeah. selling him as like sort of this freak show at the beginning, um, but you know, I think largely because of his personality and his buy-in to the theater of of wrestling, um, he's able to become you know kind of this figure above. Just sort of that, right? Uh, which, which I think is is really interesting. Yeah, I I don't know. I thought this was an interesting movie because, like, I've always kind of known some of the history of wrestling, but I think they do a really good job of like piecing that together and and showing you how it sort of became bigger than you know these like regional areas and and how it became like such a phenomenal influence that it was in the the late 80s and early 90s yeah for sure and and it's also subtextually kind of the the story of cable television yeah you know the rise of cable television from network television because you know back in the day before cable television you would you it would be closed circuit Mm -hmm. to see these different matches or whatever um, and then once cable television started and Vince McMahon, the original Vince McMahon, father of the guy who owns it now, put together this this roster of professional well, yeah, what, wrestlers from all over the world. Well, what what he did was, um, uh, as he says in the movie, he is, you know, they put the production value into the show. Yeah. They, they made it a show. Right. Uh, and it could be uh, something you could tune into every week. And because of that, they were making way more money and there was just more opportunities. So they would be, they had their pick, you know, pick of all of the regional superstars of any area. They yeah. could just pick and choose the, the biggest guys, um, the most popular guys. And they were able to, you know, make this whole narrative around them. Right. Absolutely. And then there are still narrative, there, there are still regional wrestling leagues that a mm-hmm. lot of the wrestlers who eventually make it to cable television come from. Um, there's, there's a version of that that still exists, but it's now it's so much more about the branding. It's so much more about well, the IPs. And, and I feel like any more, those are, they're, they're more like um, kind of like farm teams for baseball, right? Like, right. It's like triple a. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you pay your dues in the regional circuits to hopefully one day make it to the nationals. Right. Um, whereas back then it was like, that was just your career. You would do these regional circuits. Um, yeah. You know, you would do as many shows as you could get booked for or whatever. Um, and Andre the giant, was getting booked for everything, and, and he and he traveled everywhere before that was probably super normal to do. Yeah, and in his association with um, Vince McMahon Senior, you know, he was able to to work sort of more of these regions than than just his area. He was, he, right. you know, because he was such a, a big draw, he could kind of be loaned out to. Basically anywhere he wanted to go, sell out whatever show it was, the the district benefits from it, and he became 
uh, you know, a superstar through kind of word of mouth almost. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, yeah. and I mean, there was magazine, like, you know, local magazines and stuff like that, wrestling magazines. Sure, yeah, Where yeah. some of these guys were becoming but, sort of famous. But it was all by by reputation, you know, like you, they, yeah. they would see pictures of him in magazines, but it wasn't the same as it is today. Like, you know, we couldn't see him on TV. You would hear about this seven foot four giant whose entire hand was bigger than most people's head. Right. And how, you know, he was undefeated and, uh, you know, he would take on uh, uh, two people at once or, or do a Royal Rumble and, and he would always be the last man standing out of 20 people or whatever. It was all built. And also, you know, um, they make the case that it's also sort of the way real people get mythologized. Like, um, right. Yeah. They, they talk, they talk about, they talk about him as sort of becoming this cult of personality through mm-hmm. it. Um, and of course they talk about, you know, him getting the role in the princess bride and, yeah. and his, un, his untimely death. He did die fairly young. He was in his forties. Yeah. He, and his unfortunate, um, health issues due to, uh, his gigantism, which, uh, he l- largely didn't want to treat because he felt like, um, you know, he, he felt like that maker. was sort of yeah. God's blessing. Like, that's who he was. And, and you know, that – and so he lived that life. Uh, I Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't talk about – and I'll say that I think that there is maybe a slight bias or slant um, specifically from McMahon and, you know, who's never been known to be like – a super ethical dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, Hogan and, and some of these other characters who show up in the movie, they talk a lot about him, like, drinking everyone under the table, like, going through cases of wine a day. Yeah. And talking about it like, oh, well, you know, because he was this big, this is obviously the only way he could have fun or whatever. It's like, yeah, well, you know, that probably wasn't great for his health overall, like over the course of 10, 12, 15 years drinking like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they he, they also they, talk about how he used it as, as self-medicine to to for his back pains and things like that as well. But also well, and and they also largely don't talk about, you know, sort of the the toxic culture that exists within wrestling, like Right, uh, especially at the time when there was less eyes on on the business side of it, and yeah, you know, like there's a there's a part in the movie where they talk about how proud Andre the Giant is that he's never hurt anybody, you know, uh, which again, from all accounts, uh, it seems like Andre the Giant was a very sweet, uh, lovable, like you know, fun loving guy, yeah, um, who who was had sort of a naturally gentle nature, um, but. Yeah, it doesn't talk about sort of the underlying issues of the wrestling culture. Uh, you know, they briefly talk about how this life, how hard this lifestyle was on him because of his size. Like, uh, you know, that they couldn't find cars for him. Right. Uh, and airplanes were always a problem and everything and, and was a problem. Beds. And and so, yeah, yeah. they, uh, they kind of skirt around how, you know, the culture of wrestling probably sped up his, his right. demise more than, you know, if he hadn't been living that lifestyle. But they also make I mean, he case. got to live the life he wanted to live, ultimately. And I think, yeah, you know, and And they make, you know, they also make the case that he kind of helped 
develop this culture like you know sure uh, because this next generation of wrestlers looked up to him because he was such a big star i mean when we're talking about his like back problems and things like that and you know all all of these different things i can only think who knows you know i mean we even in like the non-scripted sports world um in like professional football and things they, they brush a lot of things Health health wise under the rug to keep the the money machine rolling. Absolutely, and you know I have to wonder like you know at what at what point did some of this stuff do un undo harm on him that totally. he could have preserved more more years of his life. Well, um, I, I mean the the movie this movie in particular definitely makes it seem like. Like he chose that. Like he knew exactly what he was doing, but but he's not know. there to tell his story. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, did did he did he know how much pain he was gonna be in later in his life when right. he was, you know, walking on canes in his forties? Right. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And doing uh, these still doing uh performances at that point too. Like, you know, trying to play it off like he's okay and they're they they talk about how they 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 designed the matches so he doesn't have to do as much lifting and things like that. But still, like you know, still, I don't. Know. Yeah. Well, that's I mean that's the thing that's always been about wrestling, right? Is and look yes, how many of those guys end up dying, or like even people without giganticism, which oh, is yeah. already which is already a medical issue for a lot of people. Uh, well, not a lot of people, but the people who have it. Um, but look yeah. at like um, all of the people in well, there, professional I mean, wrestling. There's a reason they only interview you know Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, and Ric Flair. They're the only guys that are still alive from that generation, right? <laughs> uh, a lot of them uh, die, you know, early young deaths um, due to physical injuries, due to physical uh, right. and, ailments. And- Years of steroids and years of yeah uh, undue yeah harm on their bodies I mean, Chris, and things like Chris that. Benoit, you know, you can make the argument that that uh, you know is the years of wrestling that drove him to to his psychotic break where he murdered his wife. Like, yeah, th- there's a definitely a dark side to. Um, there's a there's a story that is not being told in this story, and I don't know. I don't. I'm ne- I don't necessarily like um, hold, hold that against a documentary, but I think they tell the story they're trying to tell very well. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately it's a love letter to Andre the Giant, and it's a good one. Another yeah. thing I thought was interesting that didn't come up, and maybe they just couldn't find a way to fit it in, or like in a in a natural sort of way. But like, I think like one of it, one of the biggest things from his legacy post death is the Shepherd Fairy art, like the Obey image. Oh, and yeah. I, I was surprised that that didn't come up at some point, or that he wasn't a talking head in the documentary at any point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, this documentary specifically was focused on his life, his, his yeah. life, and his sort of career with wrestling, and and um, yeah, no, that that I I think could maybe be an interesting coda to this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I thought, you know, it was a pretty moving story. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I understood him as a cultural reference a lot more. And um, like I said, it kind of helped me piece together the sort of broader history of wrestling, which sure. I thought was really cool. I think it's uh, overall an entertaining documentary. Um, 
even if you're not a fan of professional wrestling, I think there's a really interesting character study here that you don't you don't have to be into professional wrestling or the sport of wrestling or the theatrics or even if you've always thought it was fake or phony or whatever. Well, I think you can still watch this and yeah, so and get the character study out of it. That uh, that was uh, something I wanted to say is you know everybody says wrestling's fake and what they mean is wrestling scripted. What they right. mean is the outcomes are determined. You know they they. They have some understanding of the moves they're going to do, but it's it's more of a shorthand. It's more of like a right. Uh, they're communicating while they're in the ring, uh, but they still have to be very fucking physical. They still right, are, and pe- yeah. people still do get hurt. Largely, they're hurting themselves more than the other person. Um, well, and and that's something I think that uh, this documentary talks about as well. Is Andre the Giant is one of the first people that sort of elevates it and Mm -hmm. and uh they talk about you know how he can sell things and how you know he's willing to to sort of you know always make his partners look good and stuff like that and how you know hulk hogan is sort of the next generation of that ramping up the the sort of uh characterisms to 11 or whatever Right, and the um, pop culture quality of it and the more national crossover appeal yeah, of but, wrestling. But uh, Andre the Giant definitely understood that that they were in the business of entertaining people. Of showbiz. Yeah. yeah. Yep, it's a good documentary. I If you have HBO Max um, or a subscription to HBO Cable, I would definitely recommend watching it. Um, it's a good one. Yeah, I, it's, it's really entertaining and really fun. I'm going to have us watch for the next episode that we do the 1983 film Suburbia, not to be confused with the Richard Linklater film that was that came out in the 90s. Um, this one was directed by Penelope Spheris, who also did the uh, the Decline of Western Civilization trilogy, uh, punk rock documentaries, and she also directed uh, Wayne's World and a few other comedies in the 90s. But uh, yeah, this is kind of her like... This is like kind of a famous movie among like punk rockers of the eighties. It's sort of a B movie starring punk rockers of the time. Um, and I've always meant to watch it, but I never have. So we'll talk about that. And if anybody says has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about or any of the subjects we talked about, what are your favorite sci-fi films from the last 20, 21, 22 years? Is there anything we left out an egregious miss on our lists? Uh, or if anybody uh, wants to contact us about anything, you can reach us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on, on Instagram and Twitter at mcguffinpod. Uh, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. You can read my reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal uh, by Googling Idaho State Journal Movies. That'll take you to the review archives. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VC Cassidy. Uh, be sure to leave us a five star rating and a one sentence review over at um, Spotify or iTunes, Stitcher, Player.fm, Google Podcasts, whichever one is your favorite podcatcher. Were you throwing it to me? I'm throwing it to you. Okay. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also check out my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Okay. And that is the episode. I know you don't like to talk about your life, but a guy with a freaking machete for an arm just chopped our bus in half.
Bye.